0: Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. For those of you who have been joining me the last few weeks, welcome back. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we are very happy to have you. During these challenging times, we understand that our clients have a lot to be concerned about. And we are here to try to provide relevant information on how what's happening in the markets and the economy may impact you, your family, or your business in the coming months. The importance of diversification is a topic that every financial advisor has attempted to tackle at one time or another. While we believe the decision at the highest level, your allocation between bonds, stocks, cash, and alternatives, is the most critical, we spend a lot of time with clients discussing how we achieve diversification within those asset classes. One of the means by which we do so is through the inclusion of international stocks, which have been much maligned over the course of the last decade as U.S. stocks and bonds have outperformed going away. So rather than launch directly into why you should consider international investing, let me first justify the bias of Americans to invest in companies that they know and love. When we think about the U.S. market, it's no surprise that it is the largest securities market in the world. It's the largest economy in the world policy over the course of the last several decades here in the United States has allowed for global multinational companies that operate in the United States to pursue a global approach to their supply chain. So if you think about whether it's products or services, U.S. companies have been allowed to take a lot of their business that was previously onshore and beholden to our wage structure, things like minimum wage, uh, required benefits, To be able to move that production and those services outside of the United States in order to achieve greater cost efficiencies in their business. In addition, the securities laws here in the United States are as tight as any in the world. And so when you're an investor in a company, and they release their earnings filings, uh, for instance, every quarter, you know that the Securities and Exchange Commission is reviewing those filings. And while fraud does occur, there are clearly consequences to those companies for anything that is misconstrued or misreported in those filings. And so there is a a comfort in investing in the U.S. securities market that's not as strong as perhaps other markets in, in the world. You also know the companies. So if you think about operating in an environment where you can buy the stock of a company that you use their products, you may know people who work at the company, it allows you to relate to that investment in a way that's much different than investing in a company that's domiciled in France, um, or in Indonesia, for instance, or even in Japan companies that you may not be familiar with, you don't know what they do, you don't know what they produce. And therefore, in your mind, you can't necessarily understand uh, the investment thesis behind it unless somebody provides that to you in an advisory capacity. Finally, the US makes up about half of the investable universe for stocks in the world. So while we are just one economy, being the largest economy and having as many publicly traded companies as we do up and down the uh, capitalization spectrum allows for a lot of choice. And so limiting yourself to just US companies does allow you to have a diversified portfolio across industries, across sectors, given the robustness and the differentiation in the US economy versus smaller economies that are tend to be more focused in certain sectors or industries. And so for that, There is, you know, there are a lot of arguments that I've heard over the course of the last several years, in particular, that by investing in these larger S&P 500 type companies that have a global footprint, you are in fact getting access to those international and emerging market economies without taking the additional risks that I spoke about, about changes with Um, or differences, excuse me, in the rule of law, or differences in the depth of the security market, or just, again, gaining that comfort that you know the company, you know what they do, and therefore you understand why they are a part of your portfolio. With that said, let me discuss the challenges and opportunities with a few of the other regions. And we certainly have heard a lot of news coming out of the European Union and the United Kingdom over the last several years. Clearly, China uh, and investing in Chinese stocks has been something that has taken up a lot of our attention over the course of the last two years as we've been involved in a in a protracted trade negotiation with China, which ended, or at least ended temporarily with the phase one trade deal that was signed in December of last year. But let me start on the continent uh, with Europe. The challenge in investing in Europe has always been that it is a disparate group of nations that are united only based on monetary policy. So you compare that to the United States. We have obviously the Federal Reserve, which controls monetary policy here in the United States. Um, all of the states, while we have fifty states, they are not permitted to determine what currency they would like to use or the valuing of that currency. That is all under the mantle of the Federal Reserve at the at, at the uh, at the federal level. And for monetary policy. You know, that is also consistent in Europe. So they um, adopt the European Union when they came together um, in essentially a currency block. um, That was really the adoption of the euro. There were a a lot of questions at the time of the adoption of the euro about how all of these countries, which have very different economies and have traditionally and historically manage their economies differently based on those, um, you know, just kind of socioeconomic differences, uh, political differences, you know, how those countries would come together and operate under a currency block. The flip side of that is that it made a lot of sense uh, from a trade perspective, from a land perspective. These are smaller countries, um, you know, having to cross across multiple borders from a trade perspective was highly inefficient. Um, There was a lot of slippage. As it relates to by the time these goods finally ended up with the end consumer, there were a lot of taxes that were paid uh, as a result of moving across these different countries. And so to ease and and really to create a more competitive environment for Europe within the European Union, the euro made a lot of sense. Um, But then you shift to fiscal policy. Here in the United States, clearly we have Congress and they're able to adopt uh, broader scale fiscal policies at the federal level. We also have the ability to adopt policies at the state and local level, particularly as it relates to taxation. But, you know, in Europe, each of the individual member countries handles their own fiscal policy. So if you're a from a political perspective, um, rather austere, uh, and you create the a very conservative fiscal framework similar to what you see in Germany, versus Italy, which tends to be more socialist has a much higher government spending as it relates to programs for citizens, labor protections, uh, it, 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 it creates a disconnect at times on you know being able to act in a coordinated fashion uh, particularly in times of crisis such as we see now so one of the major things that's changed over the last couple of years have been the departure of the Euro- of excuse me of the united kingdom from the european union and the second has been a renewed discussion about a more coordinated fiscal blueprint for the European Union. I'll talk about the former, uh, the departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union in a moment when I discuss the UK. But here I want to focus on a conversation that happened amongst European Union leaders last week. And they discussed potentially issuing uh, a coordinated corona bond, or what has been called in the past a euro bond, which would be debt that would be raised uh, that would support all of the economies of the European Union. And this is a novel approach to this particular problem. This has been broached at several other occasions. Um, but this is really the time where I think if it's going to get any traction, because this was this exogenous shock in for- in the form of the virus, and this was not a result of any countries mismanagement of their balance sheet. Uh, if you look at the affected countries, particularly Italy and Spain, um, who've been hardest hit by this virus, you know, being able to provide them with additional assistance, being able to fund that through the sale of a low interest rate bond across the block, I think makes a lot of sense in this scenario. And I wonder that if this is perhaps that point where you see the European Union come together post-Brexit to show that they're willing to work in concert on the fiscal side as well in order to create insulation to their, from exogenous events such as the coronavirus for their economy. With the United Kingdom, we, as I mentioned, coming out of Brexit, there's a little bit more uncertainty about how they will operate in a, in a, across this new paradigm and in this global world they one of the major benefits for the united kingdom as it relates to pulling themselves out of the european union is now their ability to go out and negotiate trade policy on their own and not part of the block and while it remains to be seen, if that creates a more competitive environment for UK exports, it certainly puts a bit more sovereignty into, in the hands of UK policymakers to think about the best way to structure trade deals that benefit their economy, which is perhaps not as diverse as the European Union economy as a whole uh, the U.K. economy is very much focused on financial services, um, pharmaceutical manufacturing. And so, you know, some of the more agricultural exports that come out of the European Union are not as relevant from a negotiation standpoint as as they are for the European Union, as they might be for the U.K. And so this could create an environment whereby they can produce um, some some trade deals that make more sense for them. Touching briefly on Japan... Japan faces a demographic challenge. Japan uh, is still a a prime manufacturing economy. But unfortunately, given their low birth rate, their aging population uh, and their high debt load, there has been essentially multiple decades of slow to no growth with virtually no inflation. And so the Japanese have an uphill battle you could say, in order to create an environment where investors feel that allocating to Japanese stocks will provide them with the appropriate risk and reward characteristics versus other opportunities they might have in their portfolio. Finally, I'll close with China. The growth of the middle class and the move from a rural economy to city dwelling creates the opportunity for China to change over time. Of course, the challenge has always been and continues to be balancing a state-run socialist government while encouraging companies to embrace capitalism and grow the Chinese economic footprint. China has realized that in order to be a more important player on the global scene, that they needed to grow their economy and they needed to adopt capitalist policies in order to incentivize companies to grow, to innovate, uh, to find better ways to do things, and really to compete with the United States, um, as I do believe that it is in the Chinese government's uh, first and foremost objective is to become the, the largest, strongest economy in the world, and that would mean uh, usurping the U.S. in that pursuit. Well, this has been but a brief overview of some of the opportunities that are available outside of the United States. The fact is, is that, as I mentioned earlier, if you're only investing in U.S. stocks, you're only accessing half of your available options. In addition, should the result of the pandemic be that we see a focus shift away from globalization, with companies looking to bring production and services back onshore, it will be even more important to invest in different geographies that can capture some of these regional opportunities. We're committed to keeping our clients informed on how this evolving situation will impact you and how to put these events into perspective. Whether you're concerned about recent market activity or thinking about how the global economic changes will impact your business, we're here to provide perspective. While there is still a lot of uncertainty at play, I want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to your Boston private team with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives as the situation evolves by visiting bostonprivate.com. And if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters there. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And check back next week for another podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions, and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank & Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank & Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.